Well, the Christian life is a God-centered life, or at least it uh, should be. When a person becomes a Christian, he or she turns from being centered on self, on himself or herself, to being centered on God. Of course, a Christian is still a, a sinner. Each of us are. And uh, while being saved by grace, there will always be a struggle to keep our lives uh, centered on God. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil all conspire together to turn us from God to self, to turn us away from the God who has saved us back to ourselves so we look inward and to trust ourselves and make ourselves our little gods. But a Christian will, will struggle to defeat this, this conspiracy. Uh, it's not just something that might happen, though they will struggle to, to defeat this conspiracy of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and do so to recenter their lives and their on God. So in this struggle, the Psalms are a great help to us. The, the Psalms express uh, in the form of poetry the full range of a believer's experience in uh, this world. And what's striking about the, the Psalms is their God-centeredness. Whether you start at Psalm 1 and work right to Psalm 150 at the end, all the Psalms are centered one way or another on God. And this is characteristic of Psalm 84 that we've read. Without doubt, this is one of the most beautiful uh, of the Psalms. It's a pilgrimage psalm, probably written uh, for the Israelites to sing as they made their way from their homes or their villages and their towns up to the temple in Jerusalem for one of the great uh, festivals. Uh, the temple was of great importance to the Israelites. Uh, for the temple was the place where God was to be worshipped and where his glory was revealed to his people. And therefore, to go to the temple was to go to meet with the living God. That was its purpose, for the people of God to come and to meet with him. Now, how can this psalm help us to center our lives on God? After all, we are not Israelites, and there's no longer a, a temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else in this world. There's no place where you can go, a building that you can go to, as you could have once gone to the temple in Jerusalem, saying, this is the place where God meets with his people. However, in the New Testament, we're told that Jesus is the temple. Jesus said himself, destroy this, uh, this temple, the physical temple in Jerusalem, and in three days I will rebuild it. And John goes on, inspired by the Spirit, to say that Jesus was speaking of his own body. His body was and is the temple of God. And it is because he is the Word made flesh, the eternal Word who became man. John says, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh and has dwelt among us, taber tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who has come from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's why the Apostle Paul can write in Colossians 2, verse 9, that in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. In the human body of Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelt bodily as the temple of God. We're told in the Bible, not only is Jesus a temple, but also that all those who are united to Jesus by faith are also the temple in which God dwells by the Holy Spirit. That is the church. The church is a temple. That's why Paul writes in uh, 1 
Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, these words, and often these are read as if it applies to us individually. But Paul's writing to the church, and this is what he says, do you not know that you are God's temple? You, the church, are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you? These Christians in Corinth, or Christians anywhere who are gathering, whether in a small number, a handful of people meeting in secret in an apartment in Saudi Arabia, or a great massive congregation of thousands somewhere, or here at the ERC today, you are the temple and dwelt by the Holy Spirit. Or Paul, again, writing to the, to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter uh, 2, verse uh, 21, uh, uh, says this, that in Christ the whole structure is being joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. That's what every church is, the dwelling place of God by his spirit. Built with, as Peter puts it, living stones connected to Jesus, the cornerstone. So just as a believer under the old covenant went to the temple to meet with God, so a believer under the new covenant that we're living under now as Christians trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ and goes to the church, the temple of God, to meet with God. Which means that in every local assembly of Christians, God is present. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you. I am present in that company, that assembly. There is the temple of God. Of course, we can meet with God alone, as we do, I trust, in our devotional time and in, with our, and in our family devotions, and informally as we meet with other Christians and read the Bible and pray and share about spiritual things. But it is in the church, in meetings like this, particularly on the Lord's Day, that we meet with God in this special way as his temple. And in, as we do, we are helped to center our lives on the living God. Just as an old covenant believer went to the temple to center their lives in God and thought about that temple and longed for that temple, so as we meet together, we center our minds on God. But as a temple of uh, the local church, or the temple that is the local church, it's really only temporary. It's only temporary. Ultimately, the temple in the old Jerusalem will be fulfilled in the new Jerusalem in the new creation, a new heaven, and in the new earth. And there, there, there will be no temple, as we read in Revelation uh, chapter 22, because uh, then we will be in the immediate presence of God. Oh, oh, not Revelation 22, Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, and I saw no temple in the city, the new Jerusalem, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God himself, the triune God, will dwell among his redeemed people as the old, old covenant temple in Jerusalem foreshadowed. And even now, when we gather as a church, we come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city of the living God, as it's put in the letter to the Hebrews, that one day will come down out of heaven. That's eternal city, where we will live forever and ever and ever. So let's bear all that in mind as we turn to Psalm 84. 
in order to recenter our lives on God. And there are three things I would like you to uh, note uh, today. And the first one is this. The Christian's longing for God's house. The Christian's longing for God's house. How the psalmist longs for God's house or for his uh, dwelling place. Uh, Look at uh, verses 1 and 2. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing out for joy to the living God. God's dwelling place is lovely, not so much because it's outwardly beautiful, but of course it is. The Temple of Jerusalem was a magnificent, beautiful uh, a building, one of the great wonders of, uh, of, of the world. But the, what makes the Temple beautiful is not so much what it is externally, but the fact is that it's loved by God's people. It's beloved of the people of God. And it's beloved of the people of God because God himself is there. And so with his whole being, the psalmist longs for the temple where God is present. How lovely is your dwelling place. My soul, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of, of the Lord. Indeed, uh, he's uh, somewhat envious of the uh, sparrows and the swallows who can uh, make their nest in the temple. So easy for them, they can just sort of go there. They can make their nest. Look at verse 3. Even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts. How envious he is. Little swallows who can make their home uh, there. He's even more envious of the priests and of the Levites and others who can serve in the temple. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. How blessed they are. Those priests can go there and offer sacrifices to the Levites and can do all their work supporting what goes on in the temple. He's almost envious uh, of them. Let me ask you this morning, do you know anything of such longing for God's house, for the courts of the Lord? Do you long to meet with other Christians among whom God is present. Did you long to come together on this Lord's Day morning? Well, that is what the church is about. Of course, there are many other good reasons to go uh, to church on any given Sunday. We, can, we meet with our friends. We love meeting with those we love and know and, and, and so on. Uh, we can use our, our, our gifts. We can uh, hear the Bible being taught and preached and, and, and so on. But what we should long for is to meet with the living God, with the people of God. There are many means by which this happens. But we must be careful not to confuse the, the means with the end. God gives us means of grace, but in the end, the means of grace are means to the reality of meeting with God himself, knowing God, communing with God. And the end of our meeting with other Christians is to meet with God himself. We can do that alone, yes. But God wants us to be church. He wants us to be the assembly of his people, meeting together, where he is present in a unique and special way. And the object of our meeting, then, is not only to know more about God. Yes, we want to know more about God. We want to hear from his word. We want to hear, understand the great truths that are revealed uh, in, in scripture, all that God reveals about himself and his word and his great salvation. But we want to know more, not just about God, we want to know God himself. We want to commune with God, and it's that which we should long for. So how do we cultivate such longing for God? If we're honest, the, the, the longing of the psalmist is not always the, the way we feel when we come to church on a, on a Sunday morning. 
so many things that can distract you. I'm glad that happened already. You know, your children, if you have young children, as I know quite a few do, uh, you know, that's very difficult. I, my children are grown up now, but years ago, I, uh, pastor, maybe like Hendy, you're trying to get to church, you're trying to get through mind and spiritual things, but you have to deal with the kids who are fighting, squabbling, and all that sort of thing. And it's uh, difficult to get yourself in necessarily the best spiritual state of mind. There might be news you've heard on the news in the morning, or things you've heard from someone, or there might be worries or concerns you have or what's coming up the next week, and it's very difficult to get into a spiritual state of mind, longing to meet with God. Uh, we may want to go to church and, and look forward to doing so, but if we're honest, it's not with the intensity of feeling that, we, that is described here in Psalm 84. What we need to do is then is to prepare ourselves and we need to, to pray through the week, just, just before you go out the door on Sunday morning, but through the week and on Saturday evenings, after the kids go to bed and after you can sort of relax a bit. You don't have to watch TV. You don't have to be on the computer or, or device or whatever. But at least spend some time preparing for services. Ask God for the right attitude with which to come. Meditate on God's character and his grace revealed in the gospel. And in particular, reflect on the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true temple. And all that God has given us in him. And confess your sins in the light of that and repent of those sins. And let the Holy Spirit whet your appetite for the spiritual feast that he has prepared in the temple. And come to church with that expectancy. Now you might think this is somewhat unrealistic. The reality may be that the church doesn't quite come up to expectations. The service isn't quite what you thought it would be. The sermon wasn't, you know, the best one you've ever heard or whatever it might be. And there might be people who annoy you or sitting too near you or something like that. Uh, well, sadly, that is often the case. Churches are just, you know, made up of sinners like you and me. They're not, we're not in heaven yet. The problem might be with you, and you need to uh, put that right along uh, the lines that I've uh, suggested. If you're not, your heart's not in the right place, or there, and there's sin that needs to be dealt with, or a relationship that needs to be put right. But equally, uh, the problem might be with the church, and I've been the pastor of a church. My church wasn't perfect, and I, could, I knew more of their imperfections than anyone else. And, uh, and, but no church is uh, perfect. Yes, preaching might always be the best you could have got sometimes. I, did, I had done sermons that didn't quite go the way I thought, and... Uh, and uh, and sometimes the service didn't quite work out the way it was, and things went wrong. The heating didn't work. The uh, once you know, fire alarm goes off, and, you think, and I, I had that once in the middle of a, a sermon, and, and so on. And uh, thing, these things can happen. Uh, and we go to church. It's not maybe not quite to your taste in different ways. You can not necessarily this church, but other churches you go, and oh, wow, you know the, the, the songs they sing, the hymns they sing, and, and so on. Well, if that's the case, make sure that it isn't merely a matter of style and not the substance. But if it is uh, a matter of substance, then pray about it and take constructive steps to try to change things. But always remember that what makes God's house lovely is not so much that what it is outwardly. It's not the externals, but the reality, the substance, which is God himself. That whatever, however imperfect the church is, God is present. He has said he's present in that assembly of God's people. And God is there. It's a temple of the Holy Spirit. We must have the right attitude of the church, therefore. 
Our prayer must be that the, the living God would be present in the assemblies of his people, in the assemblies of this uh, church, so that we long to be with his people. We long for the courts of the Lord. Which brings us to the second thing we want to see, and that is the Christian's journey to God's house, the Christian's journey to God's house. Uh, God's house or the temple is not only the meeting of his people in local assemblies, in the local church. Uh, God's house or temple is also the new Jerusalem where he will dwell forever among his redeemed people. And it is uh, to that house, that ultimate temple, that we journey as believers in this world. Indeed, every Lord's Day service is just simply a staging post along the way, isn't it? It's a long journey. And when we meet together, it's another time we come together to find strength to keep going on the journey until the next Lord's Day and the next one and now, until the Lord takes us home uh, to, to glory. But we're on that journey to the eternal city. And that's why the Christian life has often been pictured as a, a long journey or, or a pilgrimage. Perhaps the most famous portrayal of that journey is John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which I'm sure many of you ha have read. And it's a, it's a story of how Christian makes his way to the celestial city. That's what the Christian life is. Each one of us, like Christian, making our way to that celestial city. And there are lots of struggles and difficulties and challenges and so on on the way, as you can read. Uh, but that's what the Christian life is. That's what John Bunyan was trying to tell in that most memorable, vivid uh, way. And he knew it in his own experience. I'm doing a, I'm just starting to write a book, actually, on, on uh, the per great persecution of the, the Puritans from 1662 when they were expelled from the Church of England until uh, 1689 when there was toleration and people could worship freely according to their conscience. And there was fierce persecution. Bunyan wrote this, that book out of his experience, himself in prison, but many of his own congregation in prison, many other Christians around the country, Puritan Christians in prison, their property sequestered, uh, fined phenomenally, uh, phenomenal amounts of money for simply meeting together as God's people or preaching the word. But that's the pilgrim's progress, the hardships and dangers and toils of life to the celestial city. Now, Christian may or uh, may not move very far physically in this life. You may be born in Hackney and never left Hackney, still going to church in Hackney, so you haven't uh, you've gone very, very far physically. But spiritually, you are on a long journey to the heavenly city of God. Hebrews uh, brings us up, Hebrews chapter uh, 11, Hebrews 11, verse uh, 13. Uh, the writer of this point sums up what he's got so far, particularly focusing on Abraham, and he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. The people who speak make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city, an eternal city, for them. And the spiritual journey is described here in Psalm uh, 84, verses 5 to 7. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and whose heart are the highways of Zion. As they go from through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. 
For the godly Israelite, the physical journey to Jerusalem was also a spiritual journey. They have set their hearts on pilgrimage, or literally, or as it puts in the ESV, on, 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 on the highways of Zion, or in their hearts, the highways of Zion, verse 5. From within, they, they were traveling to meet with God in his temple. And so it is with us on our journey to the heavenly Jerusalem. What matters is that our hearts are set in pilgrimage, that in our hearts are the highways of Zion. That's what really matters. Of course, outwardly, we can look as if we um, are on this journey, but inwardly, inwardly we're not. There are people who can look outwardly to belong to the people of God who are not genuinely in the people of God because they're not born again of God's Spirit. They haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, and for whatever reason... They're with other believers outwardly, but inwardly their hearts are far away. But the longing described in verses 1 to 4 is an inward disposition, an inward journey. It's, it's someone who has a changed heart. So let me ask you, is that true of you this morning? You have the highways to Zion in your heart. Is your heart set on pilgrimage? Do you, in your heart, do you want to be going to that heavenly city? Do you want at the end of your journey through this world to meet with God? That's the big question, isn't it? That's the big question. And that's the one each of us has to answer. And I trust we can answer it in the affirmative with a yes. It's, I am on that journey. I do have the highways of Zion. Maybe not always with the intensity that I should have, but I do have it there. I want to reach that city. I want to be in that pilgrimage, not only outwardly, but inwardly. And uh, we should say yes, and I trust most of us can, but there will be some among us who haven't yet. Yes, we might outwardly say yes, but we know in our hearts that we haven't trusted in Christ. We know that we're far away. Some might just be exploring all this and wondering if I should get on this journey in the first place and just here, and you're just wondering... Is this something I'm going to get on? Well, you, you need to. And how do you do that? It's through faith in Jesus Christ. It's turning from your sins, repenting of your sins, and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. And when you do that, you're given the Holy Spirit. Your sins are forgiven. You're in, you receive the Holy Spirit. And you have from within that desire, that longing for Zion. You have the highways to Zion in your heart. Do you have that? Is that a reality for you? Is that the truth? Now, for us to make this journey, we need God's strength. We can't do it uh, in our own strength. In ourselves, such a, a journey is impossible. But God gives strength to those who have set their hearts on pilgrimage, or who have, uh, in whose hearts are the highways to Zion. And even in the, the difficult times of life, God refreshes his people with his strengthening uh, grace. Uh, look at verse uh, 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs, and the early rain also covers it with pools. The valley of Baca can be the valley translated as the valley of weeping, or the valley of balsam trees. Either way, it is a desolate place through which uh, the pilgrimage, the pilgrims travel. Not lush farmland with vineyards and lovely things all around it, but a really barren uh, place. Perhaps you've been in a place like that. Not far long before the lockdown, my wife and I went on a uh, tour to Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan, which is in the 
uh, on the Silk Road that leads to China. It's just north of Iran and Afghanistan. And it's an amazing place, really. But we went to this place, Turkmenistan, and at our age, had to do two nights of camping, <laughs> wild camping. It was not something I, I'd rather stay in a hotel. Anyhow, wild camping. And we were in the middle of this desert. It was the most desolate, scrubby, awful, unattractive, unpleasant place to have to be spending time. But it's, because it's such a big part of that world, you had to travel through it. And that's often the case in the Christian life. You know, we, we have to go through desert, bad places, desolate places. But it's in such places that God sends the autumn rains to revive uh, pilgrims, to refresh them. Just as he sends rains in the desert in, in the Israel or in the Negev, and they would come to life, even for a short time. So he sends refreshing rains into the life of a believer. And it's in the difficult times of life God that sends his grace to refresh us and to revive us. All of us pass through the valley of Baca at various points in our lives. All of us go through tough and difficult uh, times that seem spiritually barren. Perhaps you're going through that right now. You've come to church and you just don't feel you can enter into the hymns or the prayer. And it just, it's just it, life is really, really tough. And you have a problem in your, in your family, perhaps, or you have a, a problem in your marriage, with your, in your relationship with your husband or with your wife or with one of your children. Uh, you're worried about your health. Uh, you, you, your work is uncertain. You're not sure if your job is going to be there with all the changes that are happening post-COVID and so on. Well, you know what that problem, that issue is. And it's at such times that God sends the rain of his grace uh, into our hearts so that instead of being a desert, your life can become an oasis. The spiritual desert of this world, your life, refreshed by God's grace, can become an oasis, a place of refreshment, a place of, of life and fruitfulness. As we trust in God, he gives us grace so that we can go from strength to strength until each of us, each one of us, appears before God in Zion, verse 7. Each one of us appears. He gives us the strength to go from strength to strength. We may not feel that strength. We're weak. We feel weak. But the fact that we keep on going, we get to that next day and keep pressing on in spite of everything, is because of the grace that God gives us to move on. And notice how particular God's strengthening grace is. There is grace for each, each and every Christian for the journey. That's always the case with the gospel. The gospel is just not for salvation for the whole world. Of course it is that. But salvation for each believer in particular. Uh, Martin Luther said that the, the greatness of the gospel is in its, in its pronouns. It's for you. It's for you, he says. It's for each one of us. Not for people in general, or even the church in general, but for each one of us. And, it, and, and, it's, and verse 7 tells us that. To go from strength to throw, to go from strength, to strength each one, each one appears before God in Zion. The Lord knows each one of our circumstances and gives each one of us the grace we need in those circumstances, whatever they are. And at the end of the journey, not one of God's children will have failed to make it. We might struggle behind, but we'll make it in the end. We'll get there in the end because God gives each one of us who is his the grace to persevere. And so with the psalmist, we can pray for grace to complete the journey. Verse, uh, verse 8. Oh Lord, 
Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. We pray for grace. And where do we get that grace? It's through the Lord's anointed. So the psalmist that would have been the king. But the kings of Judah and Israel foreshadowed that one anointed, the Messiah who had come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the anointed at the right hand of the Father. We pray that through him grace would come to us by the Holy Spirit to give us the strength to go on in the pilgrimage until we reach Zion, whatever our circumstances are. He gives to us through the Lord Jesus Christ, each one of us, the grace that we need. Which brings me to the third thing we want to see, and that is the Christian's dwelling in God's house. The Christian's dwelling in God's house. Seeing the Christian's uh, longing for God's uh, uh, house and the Christian's journey to God's house. But thirdly, the Christian's dwelling in God's house. And as he journeys to the temple, the pilgrim anticipates what it will be like to dwell uh, there. Such will be his enjoyment of, of God's house that he would prefer to dwell there more than anywhere else in the world. Look at verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. One day in God's court, one day in God's house is better than a thousand uh, elsewhere. Indeed, uh, he would rather be a, a lowly do doorkeeper in God's house doing a fairly menial uh, job than dwell in the tents of the wicked where those who oppose God live and those who are condemned by God live. For in God's house, the psalmist's deepest longing will be satisfied. He will be with God. He will be with God. And so it is with us as Christians on our journey through this world into God's house in the new Jerusalem. Uh, along the way, as we meet together as God's people, we, are, we anticipate the joy of the heavenly city. That's what's happening today. We're anticipating the joy of our eternal uh, city. In the church, we begin to experience the blessing that we will experience in God's eternal house. As American pastor Jonathan Lehman, he works with Mark Dever in Washington, D.C., uh, has written a great uh, book. And he describes the church as the, uh, the local church, every local church as an embassy of Christ's kingdom. I love that term, an embassy of Christ's kingdom. We have the eternal kingdom. That's what we're going for. And every church, this church, Hackney Evangelical Reformed Church, and East London Tabernacle, and, and Hoverton Baptist Church, and other assemblies of God's people throughout London, throughout the nation, throughout the world, are embassies of Christ's kingdom, outposts of the kingdom. What's an embassy do? Let's say the British embassy in, in um, let's pick a country, Nairobi in, in, in Kenya. It's a little outpost of Britain in the middle of Kenya. And if you're British and you go into that embassy, it's a little bit of home, it's a little bit of Britain in a foreign country. And that's what every local church is, a little bit of heaven in this world, a little bit of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not perfect. You know, no church is, as I've said. It's an outpost of the kingdom where people love each other, the values of the kingdom, uh, the, the salvation of the kingdom, everything is being made known in that local assembly of God's people. And that's when we come together, we, we, we have a sense of that. And when we do come together, we wouldn't, and, and are God's people, we wouldn't exchange our position as Christians and members of, his, of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ for anything that this world can offer. 
Other people have the riches, the fame, the celebrity, the, the power, or this, that, and the next thing the world's offer. But what is it? It's empty. It's all empty. But John Newton captured the sentiment in his, perfectly in his great hymn, Savior, since of Zion City, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride and pity. I will glory in your name. Fading is the world's best pleasures. All its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasures, none but Zion's children know. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to belong to God's people, to dwell in the house of God, to be with the people of God. And something of what we will experience in fullness in the new Jerusalem and have begun to experience now in the church is described here in verse 11. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The Lord God is our sun as he shines the light of his salvation into our lives. We were once in darkness, but now we are in light. We lived in the kingdom of darkness. Now, by God's grace, we are in the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the prophet Isaiah described it so powerfully in Isaiah chapter uh, 60. Isaiah chapter 60, uh, verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen on you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness over the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be uh, 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 upon you. And then verse 19 of that same uh, chapter. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor the brightness shall be the, uh, shall the moon, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your God will be your glory. And your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. Jesus spoke of himself as the light of the world. And in the new Jerusalem, the Lord God himself will be that light. Again, Revelation chapter 22 uh, verse 5. The night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. And not only so, but God will be not only our light, but our shield who protects us from all evil. Uh, as our faithful covenant God, he bestows on us favor and honor and grace and glory, as our authorized version uh, puts it. I like Spurgeon's uh, comment on these verses. The Lord has both gr grace and glory in infinite abundance. Jesus is the fullness of both grace and glory. And as his chosen people, we shall receive both grace and glory as the free gift from God of our salvation. What more can the Lord give or we receive or desire. What more can the Lord give or we receive or desire than the grace and glory that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ? But we can receive nothing more than that, can we? We can receive nothing more. As the psalmist says, no good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is upright. No good thing does God withhold from his people. In Christ, we have everything that we could possibly want. We may not have what this world we want in this world, 
But this world is brief and passing. Our lives, even if you lived 100 years old, is just but a, a, a pin drink in, in the sweep of eternity. But we have eternity ahead of us. That's what we live for. And, 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 uh, and we have everything. So yes, we're just like we may not have what we want. We may be very poor. We may be, uh, have difficult times. Our health has been chronic all our lives and whatever it might be. But we have everything, every spiritual blessing given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. All things are ours in Christ. So Paul asks in Romans chapter 3, verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for, for, for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has given us Jesus, he's going to give us everything, eternity, infinite blessings in Christ. God will give us these things. And the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ is our guarantee that he will. There's no good that God withholds from those who live before him. For eternity, we will enjoy the abundant goodness of our Savior God. And right now, we can begin to enjoy this goodness as we trust in the Lord Jesus. Look at verse 12. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. By faith, the blessings of salvation described in verse 11 the grace and glory that are ours, are ours through faith. When you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, you will walk before him uprightly or with a blameless life. That doesn't mean you will be perfect in, by any means. That's impossible in this life. We're still sinners, as we all know. But when you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be a difference for good in the way you live. You will be a different person. You are not the same person you once were when you were outside of Christ. You're a different person now in Christ. And you're not a perfect person yet, but you're a changed person. And you'll begin to live an upright life, a life that reveals something of the righteousness of God in your character. A life that reflects something of, of the character of the Lord Jesus in the way you live. That will be the evidence of the grace of God that is at work in your life. And such a life honors God as it, as it anticipates meeting him. Such a life as we make our way through this world brings pleasure to God as we look forward to seeing him and meeting with him in his eternal kingdom. And in the end, that is what a God-centered life is all about. Living for God, an upright life that's evidence of his grace, his saving grace, as we look forward to meeting him and being with him forever and ever and ever. Amen.